Ignition sequence start. Three, two, one. Lock and load. It's time for the gun rack with your hosts, Joey and Drew. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Gun Rack, Sonoran Desert Institute School of Firearms Technology's official podcast. I am Drew Poplin with you here today. Uh, been feeling a bit under the weather, been fine this cold. I got it, uh, I think over Thanksgiving weekend. So just grant me a little grace if I sound awful. I hope everyone out there had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Joey is out on vacation. He's cruising the high seas. Uh, him and his wife decided to take a little trip. Very happy for him. Uh, I don't know when the last time they went out was, but certainly hope being the best. Uh, hopefully doesn't have a Francis Marion situation and have an encounter with a whale. That would be tragic, but um, we're excited to hear about how his cruise went and what he's been up to. As you can see from the tile, we're continuing our Southern Battles of the American Revolution series, and we're talking about the Battle of Guilford Courthouse today. This episode is probably the second to last episode in the series. I think we'll probably end up doing an episode on Fort 96 just because I keep seeing it pop up. Seems pretty important, but for all intents and purposes, this episode truly feels like the culmination of the entire series that we've been doing. Um, in my eyes, this was always sort of viewed as the main finale, especially since we've already covered Yorktown before we even started the series. So it's really, really exciting. Going to get into it soon. Real quick, let me talk about Sonoran Desert Institute. Sonoran Desert Institute, aka SDI, is an online school that helps students learn the skills and techniques they'll need to be successful in the firearms and unmanned technology industries. SDI is accredited by the Distance Education Accrediting Commission, the DEAC. Currently, we offer two programs in firearms technology, the Associate of Science in Firearms Technology and the Certificate in Firearms Technology Gunsmithing. If you want more information about either of those programs, go to our website, www.sdi.edu for more now yeah let's hop right into this because there's a lot to talk about uh my main resources for this was well i actually got to visit the guilford courthouse battleground itself they have a museum and yeah, they essentially turned the place into a park so i was very grateful for the opportunity to get to go um was able to learn a lot of things, took a lot of pictures of the displays. So I'm kind of using them as my chief resource for this. But other resources that I've included are the National Park Service, that's nps.gov, the Journal of the American Revolution, and Carolina, uh, that's Carolina, not Carolina.com. So let's talk about the people of Guilford real quick. So naturally, as you know, time went on. Yeah, as the colonists were moving to America, the colonists moved progressively from the coast more inland. That's to be expected. In this particular area, we we here call it the Piedmont Triad area to kind of set it apart from the the research triangle in North Carolina. We got a lot of triangles here. Uh, we, we like our little three city structures, uh, but the Piedmont Triad it includes Greensboro, Winston Salem and high points in this particular area you start having folks moving to the area near guilford courthouse around 1740 
1771, Guilford County was officially formed. And a lot of these people that moved here, they were humble farmers, you know, small farmers. It wasn't like they were able to make a lot of profit for the things they were trading. Uh, I find it interesting that you know, just because given their close proximity to each other, there's these different religious settlements that pop up in the region. In New Garden, basically an area of modern-day Greensboro, which is close to where – that's basically where the Battle of Guilford Courthouse happened, you have a settlement of the Friends, otherwise known as Quakers. And about half a day's ride, you have the Moravians of Salem, which is in modern-day Winston-Salem, and that's where <laughs> Joey works. He works at Old Salem. But they weren't exactly interacting with each other, and if you want to find out more about that history – Read Parallel Lines in Piedmont, North Carolina, Quaker and Moravian History. It is 28 pages long, so it's a short read. It's free. It's online. So definitely encourage you to check that out. There were some very interesting nuggets of information in there. Um, most of it wasn't necessarily relevant to you know, what we're talking about and you know what this podcast is about, but definitely some interesting stuff. The Quakers, they were pacifists. They opposed war. In fact, they they actually had to pay triple taxes in order to not serve in the military. Unfortunately for them, war would be coming for them whether they wanted it or not. Now, just a refresher on the timeline of the Southern Battles of the American Revolution. 1778, the, South, the war moves to the South and starts with Savannah, Georgia. In May of 1780, the Brits finally capture Charleston and they move into South Carolina. That same month, you have the Battle of Waxhaws, which was a massacre. August of 1780, you have the Battle of Camden, which was an absolute rout by the British. Uh, and then you start seeing things change. You start seeing the momentum shift. Uh, in October 1780, you have the Battle of Kings Mountain. In January 1781, you have the Battle of Cowpens. Now, after Cowpens... Daniel Morgan, Nathaniel Green, heck, everybody knew that there would be an attempt at retaliation by the Brits. But Nathaniel Green wouldn't be able to arrive in time to offer support to Daniel Morgan. So as a result, Morgan retreated very, very quickly into North Carolina. Literally at the same time, Cornwallis's force, they were replenished with 1,200 British regulars. So they were getting more men. And Cornwallis, he was very intent on catching up with Daniel Morgan, so much so that Cornwallis actually burned the baggage wagons, you know, the supply wagons of his own army in order to try to pursue more quickly. This had a twofold effect, as you would expect. This did allow them to pursue more quickly, but this only gave Cornwallis a small window of opportunity to catch up and to attack and to wipe out the Patriots. Somewhat amazingly, Nathaniel Green would actually be able to link up with Morgan again, and on January 31st, 1781, Nathaniel Green would hold a council, to, you know, a war council to decide what their plan of action was going to be. Now, there was a, numerous fords in this area, and there was only so many men to defend them. So Nathaniel Green decided that Daniel Morgan would hold the upper ford named Cheryl's Ford. While he sent Brigadier General William Lee Davidson to defend the lower fords of Betty's Ford, Tools Ford, and Cowan's Ford. Basically, Nathaniel Green told them, hold these as long as you can and then retreat to Salisbury, North Carolina. Uh, and in Salisbury, they'd be able to replenish and restock, maybe get some more men. Uh, meanwhile, Cornwallis was looking at these different fords 
and came to the conclusion that Betty's Ford and Cheryl's Ford, well, they were too well-guarded to be viable attacking points. So Cowan's Ford would be the target. However, he decided to attempt to uh, deceive. He was going to do a ruse. Uh, so on February 1st, 1781, he sent Lieutenant Colonel Webster with a small contingent of men to Betty's Ford to, quote, make demonstrations of attacking, unquote. Luckily, William Lee Davidson had figured out that this was probably a ruse, so he decided to have 250-ish men ready at Cowan's Ford, which is near modern-day Lake Norman, North Carolina, which is a super nice area, like a bunch of a bunch of the local rich people. That's where they have property at. I think um, I don't know if Jeff Gordon could be considered local, but I know he used to have a place on Lake Norman. Anyway, Lee Davidson had guessed correctly that, you know, Cowan's Ford was the actual target. Uh, the Battle of Cowan's Ford was initially going well for the Patriots. They'd actually pushed the British troops back to the river, which caused many of the troops to get swept away. Uh, and so things were going well. It looked like uh, they might pull out a surprise victory. But then Lee Davidson was shot and killed. And, you know, when the leader goes down, Malicious tend to panic and run away, and this is what happened. Um, and this allowed for the counter push for the Brits, which caused the militia to flee. Many of these militiamen they ended up stopping at this watering hole for rest, not knowing that Tarleton had found out about this watering hole and was hot on their heels. So Tarleton would arrive with his dragoons and kill anywhere from ten to fifty of the retreating men. Upon hearing of the news, Nathaniel Green and Daniel Morgan. They met in Salisbury on February 3rd, and they decide we got to get out of here. So they continued their way north, eventually crossing the Yakin River as rain started to fall down heavily. Now, Nathaniel Green at this time was also writing a bunch of letters. Uh, he sent them out to um, Isaac Huger and William Lee, imploring them to meet up with them. You know, it's not super clear at what point they realized that if they make it to Virginia, if they make it into Virginia, that they would be relatively safe. But this kicks off something that is now called the Race to the Dan, the Race to the Dan River. So uh, Nathaniel Green decides, hey, we're going to just try to book it as fast as we can up north. Meanwhile, the Brits would link up. They would cross the Catawba River and they would pillage Salisbury the afternoon of the 3rd, which is you know the same day that Green and Morgan had left Salisbury. Uh, so narrow miss. The Brits were making great pace. And so they were, would just continue to follow in the footsteps of the Patriots. Basically, Nathaniel Green sent Daniel Morgan up to Guilford Courthouse. And Daniel Morgan, amazingly, he was able to cover 47 miles in 48 minutes. But hey, he's the old wagoneer. You know, what do you expect? Uh, meanwhile, Nathaniel Green would stay put for the day as he observed Cornwallis across the river, and he would write again to Isaac Huger that basically now everyone was going to meet at Guilford Courthouse. That was the plan. That was the rendezvous point. The British, who were extremely exhausted at this point because they were making great time, they'd end up resting on the other side of the river for about a day, which gave Nathaniel Green's men enough time to, it gave them the green light to march once again. Uh, without going into too much detail about the race to the Dan, because I've already gone into a, a lot for this episode not to be about 
the race to the Dan River. Uh, Nathaniel Green would arrive at Guilford Courthouse on February 7th, and then Isaac Huger would arrive the next day, which was actually a surprise to Cornwallis because Cornwallis knew that Huger was probably going to try to link back up, and so he was waiting to intercept Huger's men. Somehow Huger and his men were able to weave in and out and basically sneak past to meet up with Nathaniel Green. So with 2,000 men extremely exhausted, including Daniel Morgan, whose health was seriously declining at this point, uh, Nathaniel Green made the call that no battle would or should be fought right now. Of course, we know that wouldn't last terribly long. Besides, Virginia was extremely close, and again, they knew that they could cross the Dan River and the Roanoke River, that they would be able to rest for a while. So that's what they did. They crossed the Dan, they made their way to the Roanoke River, and the British would arrive at the Dan River on February 15th, only about 12 hours too late. So narrow escape by the Patriots and Cornwallis, of course, you know, having burned his supply wagons was understandably very frustrated. Uh, and he took his army back to Hillsboro, North Carolina for the time being. And this represented a small victory for the Patriots, but one that ultimately was short lived. After all, there was still a lot of work for Nathaniel Green to do. He had to get reinforcements and more supplies they had to do this before they could really make their way back into North Carolina to fight again. Now, meanwhile, Cornwallis was focused on a similar task, you know, getting more supplies, getting reinforcements, and was hoping that he'd be able to gather more loyalist support so they could enlist in his army. Ultimately, he, at this point, didn't have enough men or supplies to invade Virginia to you know keep going after the Patriots. But maybe if he could get enough loyalists, uh, maybe that could be a reality. So on February 24th, 1781, only nine days after the race to the Dan had ended, a brutal affair occurred. And this happened. There was a loyalist named Dr. John Pyle. He was a loyalist in the area, and he managed to gather around 300 other loyalists to join up with Cornwallis. However, White Horse Henry Lee found out about this and you know of course he had other plans so that afternoon john pyle sees men on horseback they were dressed in green jackets and they were approaching now if you remember we talked a little bit about it in the calpins episode but if you remember the image of cavalry dressed in green jackets heavily associated with banister tarleton's dragoons so he's thinking oh great it's tarleton's mid So, you know, they're getting ready to welcome them. However, it turned out it was actually Henry Lee. And Lee's men managed to kill over 90 of Pyle's men with sabers. Like I said, it's pretty savage, pretty brutal. But the result of this encounter uh, that would go on to be called Pyle's hacking match was that this would extremely discourage any loyalists in the area from meeting up with Cornwallis. So Cornwallis would not be getting additional help from any of the loyalists in the area for the eventual Battle of Guilford Courthouse. Now, eventually, in March of 1781, both sides would, again, find themselves making their way back to Guilford Courthouse. The Patriots, on their part, would turn Guilford Courthouse into their temporary headquarters. And before dawn, on March 15th, Nathaniel Green would receive word that Cornwallis was approaching. 
Breen, who didn't exactly trust his militia, decided it would be better to defend there at Guilford Courthouse rather than attacking Cornwallis themselves. Uh, you know, he'd be able to use the land to his advantage. Uh, and Green would use a similar strategy that Daniel Morgan used at Cowpens. He'd deploy three different lines of troops, whilst using the terrain to his advantage. Now, before we get into the battle, let's talk a little bit about the numbers, you know, how many men were at the battle. So for the Patriots... They had the numbers advantage. They had 4,400 men. Um, of course, these were divided into three different lines. They had about 1,500 men on one line, 1,200 men on another, and about 1,700 men on the other line. And these were made up of the 1st Maryland Regiment, the 2nd Maryland Regiment, the Delaware Regiment, William Washington's Legion of Dragoons and Light Infantry, Henry Lee's Legion, which was three horse companies and three men on foot companies. Uh, you had the 1st Continental Artillery, the Virginia State Regiments, the North Carolina and Virginia Militias, and three units of riflemen made up of North Carolinians and Virginians. The British, on the other hand, had just under 2,000 men. I think it was about 1,900. And these were made up of the Foot Guards Battalion, which was the King's Personal Guard, the 7th Regiment of Foot, uh, the Royal Fusiliers, most of whom were captured at Calpins, but there's still a couple remaining. The 23rd Regiment of Foot, the 33rd Regiment of Foot, the 71st Regiment of Foot, which was the 2nd Battalion of that, um, as the, most of the 1st were captured at Calpins. These were the Highlanders, if you remember. The Royal Artillery Regiment, the Von Bose Musketeer Regiment, and then uh, a Corps of Hessians called the Ansbach Beirut and Hesse Castle Jager Corps, and the 17th Light Dragoons, and of course the British Legion. So on paper, it seems like the Patriots, of course, had the numbers advantage, but as far as I guess I had to say the quality of soldier, it seemed like the British had um had a higher quality of soldier fighting in the battle. Now, the morning of the main battle, there was also another battle that would happen you know, right there in that area uh, and serve as an important prelude to the main act. And it would see Light Horse Henry Lee and Bannister Tarleton facing off against each other. Very exciting. And uh, what would happen during the so-called Battle of New Garden a musket ball would end up shattering two of Tarleton's fingers in his right hand. Granted, according to a local Quaker named Elijah Coffin, quote, a soldier came in great haste to my mother at the dwelling, having two fingers shot off and bleeding, but she kindly dressed him as well as she could, and he hastened him back to the conflict, unquote. Now, I don't necessarily know if his fingers were shot off and it, like, you know, if he essentially had like a lobster hand for the rest of his life. I don't think that's necessarily the case, but yeah, just want to give you two, give you an account of it, whether or not it's completely accurate or not, which, you know, hey, props to Tarleton for having that wound and then just like, okay, get me dressed up and I'm going to go right back into, uh, right back into battle. Uh, and speaking of some mainly acts of tortitude, fortitude and toughness, I never heard of this guy, but I found out about him at the museum when I went this might be a good time to talk about Peter Francisco. He was a Patriot soldier who fought at the Battle of 
Guilford Courthouse. He was believed to have been born in 1760 in the Portuguese Azores, which is like an archipelago in the Mid-Atlantic. He was found abandoned on a wharf in Virginia as a five-year-old. He was taken in by a Virginia family. And when he was 16, he enlisted in the 10th Virginia Continental Line. And he was said to have done the fighting of six or eight men. He saved his colonel at Camden. He'd get a leg wound at Brandywine, a musket ball on his leg at Monmouth. Even re- and this was the one that I found crazy. He even received a nine-inch stomach wound at Stony Point. Which is insane. Nine inches. Like, and we talked about how people back then were probably shorter than we are now. Nine inches. Like that's that that's insane. Like imagine taking three quarters of a subway foot long and putting it on your chest, and they're like, Yeah, all that, you know, you're wounded there. Um, during this battle, uh, the battle of Guildford Courthouse, he killed four men single-handedly in front of William Washington. And he would end up getting, yet again, another leg wound from a bayonet that spanned from his knee to his hip. Ended up surviving, living the rest of his life. He had eight kids and I think three wives. An officer noted of Peter, quote, he never entered battle without distinguishing himself imminently, unquote. It's a pretty cool quote uh, to have about you. So, Peter Francisco, we at the Gunwreck salute you, sir. Anyway, on to the main course, the Battle of Guilford Courthouse itself. At about 12.30 in the afternoon, an artillery exchange between the two sides occurred. At around 1 p.m., the Brits charged the first line of Americans, which was made up of, I believe, the North Carolina militia. North Carolina militia would fire once and then flee into the woods, which is not exactly the most honorable representation of my home state, but I digress. Around the same time, William Washington would encounter the Brits, and the sides would exchange four engagements of musket fire. Additionally, there would be intense fighting in the woods elsewhere on the battlefield. Eventually, a returning Tarleton would appear with his cavalry, and he would scatter the American riflemen that were in these woods. So in both, I guess, all three of these instances, the Patriots would be forced to retreat. Some just scattered from the battlefield completely. Some fell back. 30 minutes later, the Brits would encounter the second line of Americans, which was made up of the Virginia militia. And this fighting, this was happening in a dense forest, which with all the gunpowder and smoke in the air, there's a lot of confusions. Eventually, the Virginians, they're holding tough, but you know they would eventually fall back. And it wouldn't be until 2.30 p.m. that the Brits would encounter the third and final line of of americans so at this point cornwallis managed to get through the two lines of american infantry now if you remember the battle of Calpins, this was where things started to really go wrong for the british um wrong for the patriots too but it somehow ended up working out for them at this point the british ranks um they had sort of lost their cohesion at this point uh it was very disjointed and now they were going up against nathaniel green's best units the first of the Brits to reach this final line was the 33rd Regiment. They engaged the Continentals, but were driven back. However, the second guards, uh, they managed to turn the uh, second Maryland's right flank, uh, but were stopped by a counterattack from William Washington. 
But before William Washington was able to you know, kind of take out the guards, Cornwallis sent an artillery attack. They basically fired grape shot straight into the melee. And, you know, Cornwallis knew, you know, with this decision, it was going to take out many of his own men, but it was going to stop the Americans from being able to you know, completely wipe them out. So it was definitely um, basically the counterattack that the Americans tried. It got repelled. So soon after that, there was a bit of a general retreat north, which in turn you know, meant that the artillery that they had on that third line got abandoned. And so it took about three hours, but eventually Cornwallis was able to take the field. Uh, Green retreated with the army. Um, so I'm not sure if you expected this, but the Brits won the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. Um, the battle ended, and so what was the aftermath? Well, the battle ended, and the dead were sprawled out over a thousand acres. Not long after the gunpowder started to dissipate, did the sky open up, and it started to rain. It was like a like a cry from heaven almost, and this would make it a lot harder to locate and to care for the men that were wounded, laying. Uh, all across this area. And to their credit, the British, along with the Quakers, uh, they would do something, they would do what they could to care for all the men that were wounded, which, you know, for a series that has seen some really awful things, you know, as we approach the end, it's it's kind of nice to see just some decency from either side. The courthouse itself and now the surrounding houses they were basically converted into field hospitals and the floors of these were stained with blood according to general charles o'hara i never did and i hope that i shall never experience two such days and nights as those immediately after the battle sounds rough sounds rough man now for the people of new garden the death would not end and they would face casualties of their own. As it turned out, a smallpox outbreak would happen shortly thereafter. It was likely brought on from you know, the soldiers who fought in the battle, and some of the Quakers would succumb to the disease. Shortly after the British left Guilford Courthouse, Nathaniel Green would return, and he tried to help how he could, but in his mind, he needed to pursue Cornwallis. The citizens of this area, they were very sweet they still contributed food and clothing to those who were covering from injuries which is a very somber scene now for the brits as i said they'd won the battle and it was honestly very impressive that they did given the numbers disadvantage it speaks to how well they fought they defeated the patriots who had a force two and a half times larger than their own the patriots had the advantage of numbers and of uh the land and um you know henry lee kind of speaks to this he says quote on no occasion in any part of the world was british valor more heroically displayed unquote nice words henry lee of course the british loss was incredibly staggering it's very costly victory cornwallis had won but he had lost a quarter of his army and a third of his officers from this battle. And do you remember how earlier, when we were first getting into this, I mentioned that uh, Cornwallis had 
burned supply wagons of his own army in order to be able to be able to chase more quickly. Well, that would come back to bite him as now he is forced to withdraw all the way to Wilmington, North Carolina, right there on the coast in order to get more supplies and to heal up. Cornwallis, for his part, saying of the Americans at the battle, he said, I never saw such fighting since God made me. The Americans fought like demons. Now the Americans, for their part, they did lose the battle of Guilford Courthouse without question, but they only lost a sixth of their force. In fact, the Americans might have been the only ones happy with how the battle turned out. And Nathaniel Green would move into South Carolina eventually, and he had employ his fight, get beat, rise, and fight again approach, uh, which eventually drove the British from the outposts that were inland. And at this point, in the Carolinas, and basically in the south, the British only were really stationed along the coast. The Patriots had kicked them out of most of the inland areas. So at this point, you know, Cornwallis, he's in Wilmington, North Carolina. He has about three options. One, he could return to South Carolina, and that would probably be seen as a failed campaign, which at this point, you know, people back home in Britain were probably already on the fence about, do we want to continue this conflict? Is it worth it? And having that loss of morale probably wasn't good. Option two was he could go back into the heart of North Carolina and he could fight green with the little men that he had left, which of course, if he failed, it could be the end of the entire war in the South as a whole or option three, which is ultimately what he chose to do was to go to the coast of Virginia, attempt to acquire more troops there, which would have included Benedict Arnold and to try his hand at a Virginia campaign. Ultimately, of course, we know how this ends, and it ends at the Battle of Yorktown. And while Yorktown wasn't the official end of the war, it was the last major battle. The Brits, essentially at this point, after the Battle of Yorktown, they lost the battle back home. Colonies were not worth it anymore. I mean, after all, they still had a global empire to deal with. So eventually, the two sides uh, meet up in France, and they signed the Treaty of Paris, and the war ends then. But without these battles that occurred in the South, you know, I'm talking from Kings Mountain to Calpins to the Race to the Dan to Guilford Courthouse, I'd argue that we don't ultimately get the Battle of Yorktown. This battle in particular, it crippled the strength of the British Army so heavily that it effectively kicked the Brits out of the Carolinas. So ultimately, as we basically conclude the series i know we still have probably one more episode left but it truly does feel like the end at least narratively speaking as we come to the conclusion essentially i hope i've been able to convey a couple different things with the series the first is how brutal almost every aspect of this period of time was in the south in particular the war uh, and the cleverness slash ruthlessness of soldiers on both sides of this conflict. Also, hope I've been able to express how vitally important these battles were to the entire outcome of the war, thus the birth of America in general. And I co- hope I've been able to share some stories and give you some insight into some of these figures from history that a lot of them are not discussed 
often, especially outside of Revolutionary War history circles. So I hope that the series has been helpful to you in your understanding of the entire Revolutionary War. I know that for me, getting to do this research and doing these episodes has been very beneficial to my understanding. And it's really kind of ignited a love and passion for learning more about this time period, these battles, and what life was like for the people that lived during this time. Yeah, so that is the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. As for the my experience at the museum, I definitely encourage you to go visit it. It's one of the nicer Revolutionary War-specific museums that I've been able to go to. The museum portion of its of the you know entire battlefield park was quite informative. Had a lot of cool relics. They had a lot of firearms amongst the bevy that they had. They had a seventy-two caliber Fowler, uh, which was you know, a rifle that fired birdshot. They had a thirty-six caliber long rifle and a seventy caliber Hessian musket that they got from the Battle of Bennington, but you know was probably models like that were probably used at the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. They also had a French model 69 caliber infantry musket. They had some cannons, some medical supplies, which was gnarly. Uh, a lot of musket balls that they were able to recover from the battlefield. Now, the battlefield itself, compared to when we went to Calpins, it felt bigger. Um, it felt a lot bigger. I mean, it they basically turned... Guilford Courthouse into a park in Greensboro. So it's not surprising that it feels like that. Now, my only thing that I had trouble with was I'm normally quite good at reading roadmaps and stuff like that, navigating. I was having some trouble doing that here. It didn't help that because of it was fall and you know the leaves were everywhere. Like I think some of the signs were kind of covered, so it made things a little difficult. They also had this massive statue of Nathaniel Green. Huge. Uh, and so that's really cool to see. And I got to meet up with my friend, who happens to be Joey's brother-in-law, which was awesome. I haven't seen him since he got married back in March. So um, that was wonderful. I had a great time. Uh, as always, I love doing these episodes on military history. I've loved doing the series. Selfishly, I'm kind of glad that we're going to do an episode on Fort 96 just so I can kind of keep it going a little bit longer. But anyway, folks, thank you so much for listening. Um, really appreciate it. That has been the gun rack. Now I encourage you guys, and it's imperative that you do this, that you have fun, that you stay safe. All right. And we'll see you at the range. Sonoran Desert Institute is an online school accredited by the DEAC. It is headquartered at 1555 West University Drive in Tempe, Arizona. For more information about how you can craft your firearms future, visit sdi.edu.